If you're visiting with us this evening, what we typically do on most Wednesdays is we will have a prayer time. We'll put it towards the end so that way some of you, depending upon your flexibility and how long you want to pray, that works. If you want to pray longer or some of you a little bit shorter. But the kids' programs will stop at 8.15. And so when you're in here after we get done with the Bible study, you're welcome to stay here as long as you want. Let's do all of our visiting in the foyer. So those who want to pray longer are welcome to do that. And you're welcome to pray out loud, quietly, kneeling down, sitting down, whatever you'd like during that prayer time. But what we're going to do is we're going to go to Mark chapter 6. We're going to do our Bible study first. What we've been doing is going through section by section of the Gospel of Mark. We had taken several weeks off because of the missions focus and conference. But let's jump into Mark chapter 6. And let me ask if any of you had this experience. When I was in elementary, junior high, I had several of these occasions that I had the grand privilege and opportunity to be one of those who would stand on the sidelines and they would say, everybody who wants to play this game, line up. And then they'd pick two kids to be the captains and they would pick one by one by one by one by one by one. And so it was always that social pressure of, am I going to be the last one that nobody wants? Did anybody else get in that? Most of you, I'm sure it never happened because most of you were the first one chosen. I almost invariably would be the last one. You can see by the physique. You know that I'd be one of the last people. And it was like, this is humiliating to the point that I didn't ever even want to start, you know, come to a point, I don't want to play any games anymore. I don't want to be involved in sports anymore because I'm always the last one. And then went to gym class and you have no choice. You, they put you in that spot. And at least I had, you know, I had that in, in a group of about 100. There was two of us that would be left. Yeah, and so evenly divided. That feeling of being rejected or not being chosen, that can be devastating to a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old. It can be devastating to a 30, 40, 50, 60, 70-year-old. Okay, and so where you feel like you're being rejected, and that can happen in family situations. It can happen with, with not being hired when you feel like you're the most qualified or you're coming and making a, a presentation and you, you sold the product so well and then they don't choose it. And, uh, it, you know, or, or the worst devastating is you're sitting with somebody and you're presenting to them your belief and your faith in Jesus Christ, and then they say, no, thank you. Well, that's the kind way some would say it. And they reject. What do you do with in those moments? How do you handle those moments when people kind of just push away and say, I don't want to deal with it? Jesus Christ demonstrates some of that in Mark chapter 6. What is happening in Mark chapter 6 is Jesus has been preaching for months. He has a three-year ministry. We are in the second, in the middle to the second half of that ministry. He has gone and preached in southern, southern Jewish, Jewish territory. He is now in the northern Jewish territory. This is his third time up here in this northern region. And he has run into some people that have been very, very, very adamant against him. Crowds come. They want to hear him. They want him to do miracles. They followed him across the sea in the middle of a storm. And they were coming in great numbers. And then all of a sudden what happens is a group of Jewish leaders, rabbis, Sadducees, they come from Jerusalem and they do an interview process, watching him, observing him, asking him some questions. And they came to a conclusion in chapter 3, if you go back there a little bit, right around verses 23, 24, 25, 26. If you look, and this is the setting to the story, if you back up, you see in Mark chapter 3, verse 22 down through about verse 30, they make a conclusion about Jesus. And it's a public uh, declaration. That Jesus is not the Messiah, but rather, how is he doing all of his miracles? What was their conclusion? 
by the power of who? Satan, or probably your Bible reads Beelzebub, that he is doing the, the casting out of the demons, and so they rejected him. They rejected all of his claims, all of his presentation that he is the Messiah, he is the promised one. And so what happens then, Jesus changes some of his ministry. He knows that in the second half of his period of three years, so in the next, you know, the next 18 months, let's put it that way, he is going to, at the end of this, he knows what's going to happen, that the rejection will turn to a point of they are going to absolutely demand his death. And so in order to, to make sure that his message continues, to make sure that Christianity continues to blossom and flourish, he's got this next 18 months to train his 12, to prepare him them for his departure. And so Jesus, in that last period of, of going into Galilee, which we're in, he's preaching up in Galilee. He is going to do a lot of public speaking, but he's also going to do a lot of private conversations with the 12 and doing some training time. And some of the public teaching is going to help teach the 12 what to do in the future. And so we're coming to that, that type of a setting. And what happens in chapter 6, Jesus heads for his hometown. Do you remember his hometown? He was born in what city? Okay, got it. this one is from your Christmas hymns. He's born where? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Did he grow up in Bethlehem? Well, they spent some time there, right? They spent some months there. But then who shows up? the wise men, and then the Lord warns the wise men and Mary and Joseph that they better get out of there because who's coming after them? Herod. Okay. And so they flee down into Egypt, and they stay there for a period of time. And when they come back out of Egypt, now Jesus is in that toddler, that preschool age, and when they come back out of Egypt, they initially head back towards what town? They do head back towards Bethlehem. But the angel warns them, or the Spirit of the Lord warns them, and they end up moving farther north, and they get all the way to their home territory where Mary and Joseph, to where their family territory, and they end up residing in what town? Nazareth. Okay. Now in your notes, we, put the, we ask this question. What do you know about Nazareth? Because what happens, this story is very pivotal. Know a little bit of the history. Know a little bit of what Nazareth is about. Just, just to give you, if, if you don't know much about Nazareth, you're in a very, very popular sector of society. You know Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament? It is never mentioned in rabbinic literature. Josephus never mentions the town. In all the apocryphal writings, Nazareth never comes up. It is a nowhere town. It's a small town that maybe had, and the estimates are from 200 to 500 people. It's a village. There's not much there. And in fact, what we do know about Nazareth is we know two things happened right around the time where Jesus would have been living in that area. One is Herod built a, uh, a Roman fortress, a Roman palace with, with guards, uh, four, to, four to five miles away from it. It's called Seraphis. He built a summer palace where he could be and the guards could be, and this would be a Roman-ruled area. And he employed a lot of the people out of Nazareth to help do the building. Now, we don't know this part. But what was, what was Jesus' father's occupation? Carpenter. If you're building a fortress, do you need carpenters and block layers? And so we know historically they hired a lot of people out of Nazareth to build the fort. And a lot of the men out of Nazareth agreed to build the fort. How would other religious Jews look at that? A traitor. 
They're working for the Romans. Doesn't that help explain a little bit? Remember when Jesus first came on the scene and he presents himself through his baptism and then you have Peter and John and they go and get Philip and then one of them goes and tells Nathaniel who is reading the scriptures and he is reading the law and as he reads they come and they say we think we found Messiah. He's come from Nazareth. And remember that classic statement Nathaniel makes? Can any good thing come out of... Okay, understand why? The southern Jews would look and say, those Nazarites, they were traitors. A lot of them, because the income was bad, uh, was bad as far as crops and all, they went and worked for the Romans for several years, building a, building a Roman palace, Roman fort. And those people are just disgusting. And so that idea, can anything come? And, and it's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It has no prophecy about it. So why would anything, why would you say Messiah comes out of Nazareth? Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. It's just a hole in the wall. It's just, you know, podunk center. And those people, they don't have scruples. to. They work for the Romans. Jesus is going back to this town where he grew up. And when we come into the story, we read just a little bit of what happens in chapter 6. He went out from thence, comes to his own country, his disciples with him. We go a little bit further. When the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many were hearing him. They were astonished. They said... From whence has this man all these things? And what wisdom is this that which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of... What's your Bible read? The son of Mary. Did anybody have son of Joseph? Nobody? You shouldn't. Okay. Okay, because the rendering is, isn't this the son of Mary? We'll come to that. The brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, are not his, what else? His sister's here with us, and they were what? What's your Bible read? They're offended at him. They're offended at him. Okay, we not only know that Jesus came from a, from a very common place. By the way, let's, let's make some, some observations. Jesus purposely chose, God in his plan chose to put Jesus growing up not in a central hub, not in comfort, not in palatial surroundings, but he gets stuck in Podunk Center. That's humility. That's commonness. That's relating to all of us. What else in this text does it tell you about Jesus, his upbringing? What else do you see in the words that we just read about Jesus, his background? Anything else about common experiences that he has in common with you. Big family. Big family. He came from a common family that he comes from. It's a pretty good sized family. There's four brothers and how many sisters? Okay, it doesn't tell us how many, but it tells us at least at least two, at least two. So he comes from a common family, a family that has some type of Jewish background, patriotism. They call some of the kids after the name of some of the famous Jewish leaders of the Old Testament, and they call a couple of them after the names of some of those Jewish independence people from the Maccabean revolts here that happened about 100 years ago when they won their independence. And so this is a patriotic family. They're using names, and, and they're they're giving it their message. Jesus comes from a common family. What else do you know about his common experiences with you? What, what did he do as a child? 
They taught him a trade. This was very common. This was, by the way, rabbinic law. That everybody, every child growing up, especially the boys, they, they, even if they're going to become a rabbi, even if they're going to become a scholar, they need to be able to work with their hands, to have something that is marketable. And so that was very common. Jesus went through that experience of working with his hands. What else stands out about his remarkable childhood? I'm, I'm setting you up here. Okay. Does anything stand out about him having a remarkable childhood? No, not at all. What do they call him? They don't call him the miracle worker. They don't say, isn't this the kid who showed so much promise? Isn't this the one that went, hey, remember when he was a lad of eight years old, he walked on water, he made the trees bend? They don't say that because it never happened. It never happened. The first miracle that we know from John chapter 2, the very first miracle Jesus does is when he's what? 30 years old. It's what, what experience? When he presents himself and it's at the wedding of Cana. And so what this passage teaches us, his neighborhood, his people that grew up that, if this is a village of two, three, four hundred, five hundred, I grew up in a town of just under a thousand. Everybody knew everybody's business. Everybody knew what was going on in a small town. In this town is half, if not less, of that where I grew up. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows what grades the kids are getting in school. Jesus, Jesus is not known. They don't say, oh, wow, this is the kid that showed so much promise. What they know about him is, up until he was 30 years old, what was his occupation? Commoner. Commoner, just like you. Okay, having those life experiences that are very similar, not having a remarkable childhood. And I'm not saying that he didn't have those abilities, but he wasn't, he wasn't presenting himself at that moment as being this, uh, this tremendous miracle worker. And then what does he do? When he comes into the village, where does he head to, to get to speak to the people? What does he do? Heads for what facility? Synagogue. The synagogue. Okay, so it gives us an idea about his religious practices. He's going to the synagogue, and when he's there, he's going to speak. But here's something that, that is interesting as you look at this, okay? You, there are some people, and uh, I was just reading a, a portion of a historical book that was talking about the Jesus that people didn't know. And I was so upset, I put the book down, and then I picked it up again, and then I put it down, and it's talking about how Jesus never died, Jesus never resurrected, it was all a hoax, and Jesus was confused, and Jesus didn't know what was going on, and he got caught up with the, the disciples, and they kind of put him into this, this situation where they presented him as a Messiah, but he didn't really want to be, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Wait a minute, look at what Jesus says in this text. Is Jesus, despite his commonality, does he know that he's on a mission for God? How do you know it? It's there. How do you know he's aware of his mission? What does he say? A prophet is without, you know, or is not without honor, but where? In his own country. What is he saying? He is calling himself a messenger of God, a prophet. That he deserves better than what they're giving because he is a spokesman for God. So Jesus is fully aware of what his mission is. Jesus is fully aware of his purpose. But he's going to follow God's will, God's plan, God's timing. Uh, that's why this gospel often say that he didn't put himself ahead of, ahead of things because he knew that his 
hour had not yet come. Okay, and so we have all that information about Jesus, okay? And here he is, and you look and he says that he's, he's expecting these people to respect him. He's, respecting, he's expecting them to give honor, but they don't. Because the passage says, at the end of verse 3, it says that, well, let's look at verse 2. When many heard him, they were astonished. Does anybody have another translation? I'm using the King James. Anybody have another word for astonished there? Anybody have something else? What's it? Okay, in, in verse 2. Now it'll show up. That, the offended is definitely going to show in the end of verse 3. Okay, in the middle of verse 2, we have, the King James puts astonished. It has the idea that they're befuddled. They're amazed, okay? That they are, they are impressed, but they're not convinced. And then you put it with they're offended. The word offended appears eight times in the Gospel of Scandalazzo. It appears eight times in the Gospel of Mark. Every time it has the idea of an obstacle in front, something that's not, you know, you can't get past or you trip over, you stumble over. These people are, are going to come to a point where they're rejecting Christ. You know, they're, they're amazed with him. Oh, by the way, do they think he's worthwhile to invite to speak in the synagogue? They did. Okay? Do they believe he's done fabulous works? What does it say? They don't deny his works. Did you catch that? That even such mighty works are done by his hands. They don't deny his miracles. They even attribute to him what type of virtues or abilities. Where did this one get this wisdom? They are impressed with what he can do, how he is speaking, what he is saying, but they reject him. They still reject him. They are offended. They are stumbled by him. Why? What, what might be going through their minds? It doesn't say. What might be going through their minds that they would say, wait a minute, we know this Jesus. Did they, did they ever see him sin? No, they couldn't have. Did they ever see him as a child throw a temper tantrum and get mad at somebody and beat somebody up? They couldn't have because Jesus was without, he was out sin. So everybody has to acknowledge he's what type of kid would you say? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a really good kid. He's exemplary. He's not doing miracles, but he's the kind of kid that most all those parents would say, but let's rephrase that. He's the type of kid that you wouldn't want to grow up as in the same household. Because everybody, the school teacher could say, why aren't you just like your brother? Okay. And so he's that type of person. Okay. And then he comes back into town and they've heard about his miracle works. You go back two chapters. Capernaum is within 20 miles. Capernaum is when crowds came to the house and they were at the outside of the house. Capernaum is near the region that he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Do you think that stayed within a 20-mile, you know, surroundings, or did it spread? Yeah, it's going to spread. So they hear things about him. They don't deny it, but they don't believe him. Why not? Why would people reject him? Why would people reject you when you speak the truth? When they see a change in your life, when all of a sudden you're talking to them about their sin and their guilt before God, what might go through their minds that they would say, 
I'm not listening to you because you think you're better than I am? Do people ever say that? Would people ever say, I'm not that bad? Would people ever say, it's too simple? This, this just believing. Remember, you're Jews. In order to get to heaven, according to Jewish faith, is there a lot of complicated rules to keep? Oh, man, yeah. And then Jesus comes along and says, all you have to do is believe on me. Too simple. His form of worship is too simple. You're saying God can just answer any prayer I pray instead of something that has a lot of verbosity to it and a lot of you know, highfalutin terms. And Jesus is just presenting a simple relationship with God. And they're going to reject him. And they're going to resist him. And they're going to be angry with him. This isn't the first time. How do you respond when your friends, your relatives, and by the way, whatever they do to Jesus, they will do to his, his disciples also. Right? And so if you look at this entire story, just, just take the whole, the whole chapter. He is in, at home. He's not given honor. That very next paragraph, what does he do with his disciples? The next paragraph, verse 7. He sends them out in what groups? Two by two to go and carry out his message. And what does he tell them to prepare for? He says in verse 11, And whosoever will not receive you. So what's he telling might happen to them? Same thing. Same thing. And then go to the next paragraph. The next paragraph. King Herod heard of him thinking that he was John the Baptist. And we get the story of John the Baptist losing his... Losing, being rejected and losing his head. This whole chapter is all about people who are of faith being rejected. There's a theme going through here. My question is this. How do you respond when you're rejected? How do you respond when relatives don't believe, when coworkers don't believe, when family starts accusing you, when all of a sudden you start going to church and they say, well, you think you're that good that you have to go, or go to church or do you think you're that bad you have to go that often? And you start getting hassled. When you start talking to coworkers and neighbors and they don't like what you're doing or you're, you're raising your kids and you're trying to have standards for your kids and some of your family, they don't get it. They don't get why you're trying to teach the Word of God to your kids. Let your kids have a choice. They're, they're mature enough at age three that they can make their own life's decisions. And you get that rejection. Can you say very simply, running through the text, here's what you do. Number one is this. When you're rejected, when you have problems, you remember that you're not alone. Remember, you're not alone. Jesus is rejected in this passage. He's been rejected by his family. It's mentioned his family is here, but if you go back to chapter 3 and remember what his family said in chapter 3, verse 21, they said, and when his relatives or friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, saying that he is beside himself. What is that? What's, what's modern 2019 phrasing of that? Yeah, he's nuts. Okay. Pennsylvania Dutch. He's nuts, okay? That something's wrong with him. His family's, his family's already been giving him a hard time. They, they've been rejecting him. Now he comes home and his hometown, they, they, they know he's preached. They know he's speaking. They know he ha- displays wisdom. There's no doubt about that. They know he does miracles, but we don't want to believe in him. 
We don't want to accept what he's saying to us. And they reject him. And even though he's got the mighty works, they just want nothing to do whatsoever. In fact, they even, I think it's a veiled criticism, personally. Maybe I'm mistaken with this. But even when they say in verse 3, is not this the carpenter? In other words, he's not theologically trained. And is that true? Did Jesus go through theological training like a rabbi? The answer is no. Okay, he's just a carpenter. What is a carpenter going to know about spiritual things? And then they make another comment. Is not this the carpenter, the son of... Okay, why is that interesting? Because in Bible days, they didn't say the son of, in my case, the son of Dolores was my mother's name. Or of my kids, they wouldn't say Tony, the son of Deb, or Ben, the son of Deb. They would say Tony, the son of Wayne. Ben, the son of Wayne. Now, I'm not saying it never happens. There's two cases in the Bible where a man is called the son of, and it gives his mother's name. That happens with David's sister's son, David's nephew. But that makes sense because David's family would make her name the prominent name. But otherwise, it's always using the husband's name, the father's name. By saying Jesus, the son of Mary... It means a couple of possibilities. Either Nazareth wasn't following culture and they did stuff weird, which probably isn't the case, or it means that Mary is the most prominent person between her and Joseph and she stood out more than Joseph did and nobody dared talk about Joseph. They had a, you know, that doesn't seem to fit. Or this is a possibility. Joseph is, he's dead and gone. And they're using terms. Or the more probable situation is what are they alluding about Joseph? What are they saying? He's not the father. He's not the father. Because they said this before. Didn't they say in John chapter 7 and then John chapter 8 we are not of, we know who our father is. We are not born of illegitimate birth. The Jews knew this about Jesus. That there was questions about who's the father. Because Joseph was saying he wasn't the physical father. And Mary was claiming she was a virgin giving birth. And everybody in that society would simply go, yeah, right. It's probably you and Joseph. Okay? And so there was that cloud that would be there by unbelievers, by critics. Oh, by the way, is that cloud still over Christ by critics today? Yeah, it still hasn't gone away. In fact, do you know where they often say the father came from? Do you remember that fortress that, the, that built by the Romans four miles away? The common, the common attack is that Mary's, Mary's lover was a Roman soldier. That's the common historical criticism. Is that, you know, they tie it all together historically. And so in this account, Jesus is being rejected. I mean, he is, he's really being, you know, being leveled by his own townspeople. They're making these comments. I think this is really important that Jesus is displaying to his disciples there is going to be rejection by people that are close to you, that in your own country you will not receive honor. And expand it, not just his town, but what major group of people do the disciples have to get in their head that they're going to be rejected by? The Jewish nation. The Jewish nation. Because where does Jesus tell them to go and preach first of all? Jerusalem, Judea, the Jews first. And what is the typical Jewish response? They want nothing to do with it. 
And so he's preparing the disciples. You know what's a very interesting insight? Before the, you know, if you jump down the story, we didn't finish reading. Um, in verse 5, Jesus, a response, he could do no work, mighty work, save that he laid hands on a few people because they had rejected him. Look at verse 6. He marveled. The only, only other time he marvels in the Gospels is when, when the Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, heal my daughter. And Jesus said, let's go to your house. The centurion says, no, you don't have to come to my house. You can speak and it'll be done. And Jesus marvels at this man's faith. This is the only other time in scripture it says Jesus marvels at the lack of faith. That he is stunned by it, if you would. That he is amazed by it. And then it goes on and it says, verse 6, there should be a break here. He went round about the villages teaching. So what we have is this. We have that Jesus is rejected. And he warns the disciples in the next few verses that you're going to be rejected. And I think he's preparing them for his future departure and ministry that this rejection will happen. By the way, there's a message that, that isn't in this text, but it's very applicable. This is the moment that Jesus preaches a message that's very important. Just to flip back, you can read it later, but go with me to Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 10. Flip over there and watch the parallel passage. Matthew chapter 10, and watch what Jesus says to his disciples. This is the same account, the same, the same setting. It's when Jesus is going to call the 12, send them out, give them power, according to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, to the unclean spirits, to heal sicknesses, etc., etc., etc. He says unto them, in verse 5, Go not unto the Gentiles or any of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of Israel. And then jump all the way down in the text. Let's jump down to about verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I am not come to send peace I am come to bring a what? A sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against who? Father. What else? Parents. Okay. Against his mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be those of his what? This is the message he's preaching when he's rejected at Nazareth. And he says, we're going to go from here. We're going to go out preaching. And they're saying, it happened to you. It's going to happen to us. Let's not be surprised. And he goes on and says, he that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Right? And he says, you have to be willing to take up your cross and... That's the message. That's what he preaches at this moment. It's very apropos in the setting, which leads us to a second thought here. Okay, is that when you experience some rejection or attack on your Christian faith, okay, remember this, it, you're not alone. It happened to Christ. His disciples were told it'll happen to them at times. It's going to happen to you. We, we shouldn't be caught off guard. But then do this. Okay, number two, keep this in mind, is that you want to continue to serve the Lord. Continue to serve the Lord. We find that illustrated by Jesus back in Mark, Matthew, Mark chapter 6, that he marvels at their unbelief, verse 6, but then he continues round about the village teaching. The word went is in the original language, um, not, not to make this you know, a show of language, but the verb there has the idea of he continually went around. He didn't stop. He was going village to village to village to village. And it's emphatic here that though he was rejected at Nazareth, it didn't stop him from hitting all the other villages. 
He was going to keep on going, keep on going. Why? Because God sent him. Because he's supposed to do this. He was supposed to go out and teach this and give it. And he even tells that to his disciples. Notice the next verse. He calls the 12 of them and he began to send them forth. The idea is, this is the first time, but I'm going to send you again. I'm going to send you by twos. And you're going to go out. And he gave them power of the end. Oh, by the way, just, just real quickly. Why send them out by two? Why go out by two? You could have done more by sending all 12 out alone. Why do you keep them together? Okay, there's encouragement when they're doing it together. Anything else? What's that? To compare, did you say? Prayer? prayer? Okay, that's a, that's a good possibility. I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't understand. What else? Companionship? Okay. Can I remind you of a Jewish culture? In the mouth of two or three witnesses. Okay. Jewish culture, you are supposed to have more than one to verify things. Is Jesus following that context of having multiple witnesses in a group? I, I agree with you. There's the prayer idea. There's the companionship. There's the support. There's security. Are you, less, are you more vulnerable by yourself than with somebody else? Okay. All of that. But if we follow the Old Testament law that Jesus is saying... In the mouth of two or three witnesses, he's doing that. And when he tells them to go out, did you notice this? You've, you've probably seen this, and I'm, I'm, I'm wasting your time. But what does he tell them to take? Well, he, he does, he, it seems like nothing, but there's some, he tells them to take a couple items. Okay, take a staff. This is for, you know, walking, if you're walking a while, or what, can, what else can you do with a staff? If somebody comes at you or an animal, okay, you can whack them. So there's protection. What else does he tell them to take? It, it, this doesn't mean much to us, but in that culture, why sandals? This is a barefoot culture. What are what sandals? There is, there's definitely protection of the feet because you're going to be going, you're going to be going a long way. So, okay, what else does he tell them to take? Something with clothes. They take one, one coat. One coat, okay? That's your outer covering, your outer tunic, you know, the heavier one. Why might you need that? Because this trip could be the short-term trip. You could be sleeping, you know, anywhere, okay? And your cloak, if it's cold, whatever, you take it. What's he tell him not to take? Okay, don't take money. You take your credit card instead. Don't take money, okay? Okay, no food, no money. Don't take a second coat, Okay? You know what, you, again, I'm, I'm telling you something you already know. This is identical, identical to a passage in the Old Testament. Anybody remember it? It's exact same, exact wording as far as what to take. When you pack up to leave Egypt, don't take da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Why? Well, they were supposed to leave in a... Hurry, there's haste involved here. Who's going to provide for them in, Egypt, in, in that wilderness? What was the point? Rely on God. Rely on God. What's he telling his disciples? This is, this, this, there's an urgency to get this message out. Come on, let's go. Go quick and trust in God's care. Okay, there's big, huge parallels here. In fact, then he makes the comment to him. He says, um, in this passage, he says in verse 10, in whatsoever place you enter into the house and there abide, 
Okay, this day. In other words, if, I, if they receive you, if all of a sudden I'm out preaching and I'm doing this and Ken and Barb say, come, stay in our house. And I stay in their house. Um, I'm supposed to stay there as long as I can be preaching and doing the things of the Lord, staying it with them because they're providing for me. Okay? I shouldn't say, okay, I'm at Ken and Barb's house. Their bed is lumpy. So let me check over here her mattress and I'm more worried about my comfort than my business. And where does that leave Ken and Barb feeling? Not good. Not good. And so he's laying foundation here that says, hey, listen, this isn't about your comfort. This isn't about your, y'all, your, about you. This is about getting the message out and take advantage. Instead of looking around and shopping for your bed, take what's there and stay. But if I go to Leon's house, and he doesn't receive me. Okay? You just became the bad guy. And he doesn't receive me. And he's rejecting me. What am I supposed to do? Uh, yeah, I shouldn't get that too close to you, should I? Okay. Yeah. okay. That was a rabbinic saying of that day. The rabbinic saying was, I'm basically saying to you with the sole of my shoe, what? Goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. It was, a, it was an expression that this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to go back to dust. You're going to be at the sole of the foot. What, what's it implying? Judgment. Judgment for rejection. And so Jesus gives them this instruction. And he tells them, using some of the common terms. And then he tells them, and he gives them power to cast out, what, demons? And to heal? And it goes in verse 12. They went out, they preached that men should everywhere. What was their message? One single word. Repent, okay? And they cast out many devils and the anointing with oil, and they heal a lot of people. So they're very successful, and yet he, they were warned, you're going, to be, you're going to be resisted. But even if you go someplace, you go to the good's house, you're a bad man again, you go to the good house, and he resists you, he rejects you, where the disciples say, oh, that's it, I'm going home. No. They're supposed to continue doing the ministry. Not get discouraged by somebody's negative approach. Have you ever had somebody reject your tracks? Have you ever had a relative give you a hard time? Have you ever tried to disciple somebody and you spent time and time and time with them and all of a sudden they just walk away from the Lord? And they say, oh, you just think you're better than me. And you go, I never want to do that again. First message my brother preached in this church. First Sunday, none of you, none of you were there. First Sunday that he preached, there's a guy sitting in the back. It wasn't in this building. But we came, we were visiting, and a guy sat in the back of the auditorium over here as Dave was preaching, holding up the Bible. Yeah, gesturing the whole sermon. It was distracting. Yeah. And then afterwards, as soon as it was done, one of the officers came running up to my brother and said, you better go and apologize. He's our biggest giver. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The guy had no concept of Bible truth, making it very clear he didn't want to hear it, you know, and disagreed with it. First reaction of my brother when we talked about it after the service was, what would be your reaction? I'm not coming here. I'm not preaching here again. I'm not preaching here. That one person meant these people are all crazy. We can do that. We can think that way. And Jesus is saying, don't quit. Don't quit even if it gets difficult, even if your kids are resisting. 
your parents, your loved ones, your family. Don't quit doing what's right. You do what's right. Can I give you the third thought here? Not only don't get caught off guard. I mean, there will be opposition. You're not alone. Not only do you continue to serve the Lord, but let's put it together. You continue to care for those who have rejected. Jesus has said, this is, I'm going I'm to throw a conundrum here. Jesus has said, if they don't listen to you, shake the foot off. We jump on that phrase. We use that quickly to say, if they don't listen once, I'm never going to talk to them again. However, let me put this in context. You think about this. Jesus has been in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry. A year before. Jesus came to Nazareth. Could be a little bit over a year. Luke chapter 4. He comes into Nazareth. He preaches. They say, they marvel at what gracious words he uses. And as he's preaching in Nazareth, his hometown, like a year, year and a half before, all of a sudden he starts telling them about how the Gentiles are a part of God's program. And they get mad. They grab Jesus by the, by the collar and they take him out of town. And they take him towards, anybody know where he's going? The hillside where there is a cliff. You know, they've, they've come forward on the invitation. And they've got Jesus with them. What is their intent? Throw him off. Isn't it interesting? The man who said, shake the dust off, by his own practice, did he come back to people and give them another chance? He did a year and a half later. Have some of the Jews already rejected him? They have. And he says, go and preach the gospel to who? The household of Israel. I don't know when is the point, and there is, a, there is a time. There is a time that we shake the dust off when somebody is just not receptive. How do you know when that is? The second time? Should we use baseball? Three times and there. How long did you hear the gospel? Doesn't this have to be by the leading of the Spirit? Don't we have to not give an excuse? They didn't hear once, I'm not going back. That's not what Jesus did in this text. He says there is a time that we need to pull back and we stop and stop spinning our wheels. But also by, by occasion in this text, he illustrates we shouldn't give up too quickly. And those people who are rejected, we shouldn't strike out. We should still show compassion, make contact, try to give them, seek opportunities, continue to care. Don't say everybody in this whole region is bad just because there's a bad apple in the group. Be caring, be compassionate, continue in the work. Don't get caught off guard. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised and say, I'll never. I got surprised. I have to stop. I get surprised. I, I, I went to visit Sterling yesterday in the hospital. And I walk into the hospital, and when Sterling's there, I walk in, and I didn't stop and read, read any of the signs on the outside of the hospital door, and there wasn't anything blatant or anything huge. But I walked in and said, hey, how you doing, buddy? And he stuck his hand out. So I stick my hand, walk over to him, stick hands, shake hands, and then he says, I don't know if I should have shaken your hand. And I said, why? He says, because I am in infectious disease control. 
okay? And I said, well, look at the positive. I didn't kiss you and hug you. That was a good thing, okay? Okay. I was caught off guard. I wasn't expecting that. I expected something different at the door that would have warned me than what was there. You know, and so then, you know, showered in the sink real quick and, you know, made... And by the way, I didn't wash that hand since I just shook your hand. <laughs> okay, so God bless you, Bob. Um, should that mean because I got caught off guard and it was probably the wrong thing to do, shake his hand, should that mean I should never go make a hospital call again? No. So the guy, the guy takes your tracks and throws it at you. Never share the gospel again? Your family gives you a hard time. Never talk to him again? No. Don't be caught off guard. Continue serving Continue to be compassionate.